Now, 13th chapter of Romans. I want you to imagine yourself tonight in four different pairs of shoes, in four different circumstances, at four different periods of history, each one being a dilemma. And we'll kind of enter a time capsule and we'll go all the way back and the year is 1760. And you're an Englishman and your company is transferring you to the colonies. Your company is expanding and and there's an opportunity to um, develop a trade in, in the colonies with the motherland. And so your company has transferred you to America in 1760 and a revolution is in the air. And your, your heart is in England, but your allegiance is in America now. Your children are being educated here, and your business is here, and new friends that you've developed are here. And there is a revolution beginning. Do you join the revolution against your motherland? Or do you stand against the revolution? Is the revolution essential, or is it, is it right? I want us to go up in the time capsule a hundred years. The year is 1860. And you're a plantation owner in the deep south. And you have slaves working on your farm. They, you really, they're, they're close to you. You don't really see them as slaves, and yet that's what they are. And you're a Christian, and so you have a little bit of doubt about the legitimacy of working slaves. It just doesn't... It just doesn't fit in concert with Scripture. And so a president by the name of Abraham Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation and a war begins. Which side are you on? Are you as a plantation owner in the deep south, do you join with the south in the war, the civil war? Or because you're philosophically aligned with the north, do you join the the, the north? The year is 1925, from 1925 to 1930. And you're a politician in Germany. You're a bright young man on his way to the top. And Hitler recognizes in you a tremendous potential. And he wants to put you in a choice position in the Third Reich. And you're a Christian. And it just runs against you that that Hitler is building this superior race at the blood of, of innocent people. Do you stand against Hitler or do you follow that, that groundswell that's there and become a part of the Third Reich and be a part of the slaughter of the Jews? The year is 1960 and you're in Russia. And you're a Russian Christian, but you have a place, a, a position in the government of Russia. And you're obligated to support the Communist Party. And a contact comes to you one day and says, Bibles are banned from the land, but you're a channel for which we can get Bibles to the people. It's against the law. And you're bound to uphold the law. And yet this contact tells you that if you'll be willing to be the channel, they can funnel Bibles through you and get the Word of God, the Gospel, out to the entire nation of Russia. Do you comply? Now these are four hypothetical illustrations, cases, 
And yet they could very well have happened in each case. Now the text says in verse 1 of chapter 13, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. And you read that, and you're a Russian Christian in 1960, and you read that and say to yourself, the Bible says that I must be in subjection, but I just can't. Now if you're following in the outline, there are two familiar extremes that have to do with authority and obedience to higher authority. One extreme is what I call inappropriate independence. Inappropriate independence leads to protest. I take the government in my own hands. I don't like what the government is doing, and so I just take the government in my own hands and I protest it. There is a sort of an anti-government militance. Perhaps not what it used to be, not like it used to be in the 60s and the 70s. I can remember that. I know you can. But there continues to be an anti-government militance that has militant disregard for the government of the land. And you rationalize, I can't support my government, so I'll fight my government. That's one extreme. Now, there are not too many people that are hearing me tonight that would be guilty of that extreme. Most of us are guilty of the other extreme. It's what I call uninvolved indifference. It's the kind of indifference that shrugs its shoulders and says, oh well, you can't fight City Hall, you might as well, you know, you know what can you do about what goes on in the world? I'm a citizen of heaven. I'll just trust God and He'll take care of it. I don't need to get involved. Some of you probably haven't voted in the last two or three elections, you see. That's what I'm talking about. That's the most frequent response. Now, let me say quickly and up front that in nowhere can you take one verse of Scripture and and stretch it out to apply to everything in in, in in the Bible. One of the basic principles of biblical interpretation is you need to see the entire context, both biblical and present context. So the question comes, well, what about those Christians in the early church that stood against the authorities, the government of the time? For example, I want you to turn to the book of Acts. Just just turn back, keep your finger here in the place, and turn back to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. And I want to read beginning at verse 16. It says, The council, that is the the Sanhedrin, said, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in in this name. And when they summoned them, Peter and John... They commanded them not to teach, speak, or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Now you know the context here. The immediate context is that these men are preaching in the streets. 
And in the preaching of the gospel, the miracles of God are being performed, and the council, the Sanhedrin, was made up primarily of the Sadducees who denied miracles and denied spirit, the Spirit. And yet they couldn't deny the fact that a miracle was being performed. And so they said, we can't let this go on. Let's get these guys together and tell them they can't preach anymore. And when they told them that, Peter and John said, well, you'll have to judge for yourself that. We cannot but speak. And what they were saying was a statement in direct opposition to the government's and authority of the time. Now, what are you going to do with that in light of Romans 13? Now, with your New Testament still there, let's look at the 27th verse of the 5th chapter of Acts. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. Now does that seem a little strange to you in light of Romans 13.1? Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Does that seem to run counter to that? Well, Donald Gray Barnhouse gives us a little explanation of this when he says that that we need to understand not only what Romans 13 says, but what Romans 13 does not say. Well, listen to what Barnhouse says. The, The difficulty of this chapter arises from thoughts that are read into it rather than what it actually teaches. Nothing here indicates what a Christian is to do when civil government departs from the role that God gave it. A government should maintain law and order. A Christian is subject to a government that maintains law and order. This chapter gives no rule... um, This chapter gives no rule a, um, a Christian is to follow should the government persecute the Christian. Now what he's saying is this, that Romans 13 is dealing with a government that is in compliance with the law and the will of God. And what Romans 13 is dealing with is not a government that is out of the will of God, but an individual who is out of the will of God. And in some other place we deal with what to do with a government like that. Charles Ryrie says it like this, He says, when civil law and God's law are in opposition, the illustration of the Bible sanctions, if not obligates the believer to protest and disobey. And what he's saying is this, that when the government demands or commands that you disobey God, you have a responsibility to protest and disobey the government. Now... There is one primary principle, and I want you to write it down. It's here in, the, in this uh, little outline. One primary principle down the bottom, page 2. The primary principle is this, that disobedience of civil authority is justified when that authority requires us to disobey God. need to say that again. 
Disobedience of civil authority is justified when that authority requires us to disobey God. At that time, we're justified in being a godly rebel. Now, we need to do some exposition, and so we're going to look at chapter 13, verse 1. All of that's um, preparatory, and we're going to move quickly into the exposition. And if you have your outline, we're now on the back page, Biblical Guidelines, and number A. Verse 1 of chapter 13, I've just read. Let me read it again. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now listen carefully. General statement. Put that by A. A good Christian is a good citizen. General statement. A good Christian obeys the law of the land. He pays his taxes. He obeys the speed limit. <clears throat> he obeys the speed limit. He stops at red lights. He keeps the law of the land. And he sees officers of the law of the land like... Bob Hendricks, as a hand of God. And he sees a judge in the land as a finger of God. And he says, in essence, that these men are ministers of God. A general statement is that a good Christian is a good citizen. And he goes on to imply or to indicate that even a Christian in Soviet Russia stops at the red light and obeys the law of that land. General statement. A good Christian, a best, the best citizen ought to be a Christian. Ought to be the way it works. All right, B. Why is it inappropriate for us to, to, to rebel against authority. Why are we to live, young people, under subjection to authority? There are three reasons. One, two, and three under B. The first is because God supports law and authority. Look at verse 2. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Because God supports law and authority. There is a breakdown of authority in this land. And it begins in the home, and it spreads into the schools. I hope it's not this way here in, in Durant, but you know, I have talked to some teachers about this, but... There are places not far from here where there need, there, there, it requires armed guards in the classroom, where people or teachers are literally afraid for their lives. It's spread into the school, and it is rampant in the land. If you don't believe that, listen to these statistics. A felony is committed in America every 20 seconds, three per minute, so that if this is a 30-minute sermon... There'll be how many? Ninety felonies committed before I preach this sermon. For one dollar that is spent on a church in America, twelve thousand are spent on crime. 
The crime bill in America exceeds $20 billion annually. And one child out of every nine will appear before a juvenile judge before he reaches the age of 16. Now listen to me carefully. The Scripture says that when you resist authority, wherever that authority is, in the home or in the school or in the land, in the public specter, when you resist authority, the Scripture says, you resist God. You can just, you know, write that down in a little black book somewhere. It's a theological, it's theologically inappropriate. Secondly, there's an external reason why it's inappropriate. Last part of verse 2 through verse 4, look. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? What does your heart do when you see a black and white on the highway? I guarantee you if you run over 55, you go boom, 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 right? I mean, I'm speaking from experience, right? I mean, what do you have to fear from, you know, a highway patrolman if you're obeying a law? See? He said, what do you have to fear? Why do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, listen, young people, if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God and avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Now, I don't know what else that says, but I do know it says this, that when people become lawless, they suffer a terrible consequence in the life they live. And they will go on suffering that consequence. It's, it brings the judgment of God. Now there's an interesting statement here. I just want to mention parenthetically. He said they, bear, they don't bear the sword for nothing. Now in the Roman Empire, uh, capital punishment was by decapitation. Was deca- decapitation by the sword. Now there are many commentators who say that this is a passage that teaches the right of capital punishment. I don't know if that's true or not. Now, I'm not going to you know, stick my neck out that far on my anniversary. But I will say I do believe it in capital punishment. And what this passage says is this, is that if you violate the law of the land, you'll live in to, to, to suffer the consequences of that. It's written in the world. It's written in the, in the law of life. It's an external reason. There's an external reason. Third, there's an internal reason. Look at verse 5. Wherefore, it is, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Folks, When you're obedient to the law, your conscience doesn't bother you. The psalmist says in Psalm 32, he said, When I broke God's law, he said, my body wasted away. He said, it hurt my bones. And uh, I challenge anybody to challenge me on this. You go anywhere 
I don't care how hardened the criminal, you go back into the back part of, of, of death row and you talk to a man there and if he's honest with you, he'll tell you that he has never escaped the conscience bearing on him for the violation of the law. I heard about a man who wrote the IRS, sent a check for $150. He said, I want to apologize and confess that I cheated on my income tax and I've been able to sleep since I did. And if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. That's right. <laughs> we'll do whatever we can to get out of a guilty conscience. Number C, the importance of appropriate obedience. Now I want you to listen up to me tonight because I want to share something that's very relevant to the very moment we live in. It's amazing how relevant the Scripture is. We don't have to, somebody says we need to make the Bible relevant. You don't have to make it relevant. It's already relevant. Look at verse 6. For because of this, because of what? Well, because God stands for law and, and authority and because you suffer a great consequence when you break the law and you suffer an internal torture of the conscience because of this, he says, I pay my taxes. Isn't that amazing? Because of this, I pay my taxes. For rulers of ser are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Now listen to what he says to do. Render to all what is due them. Tax, to whom tax is due. Custom, that's export and import customs. Custom, to whom custom is due. Listen to this, watch. Fear, to whom fear. That word is respect. Now, you better be careful when you start calling God's minister a pig. And there are people who are in positions of authority in state and local and national government. You better be careful when you start calling those people by deprecating names. Murderers and thieves. He said, respect for whom respect is due. And honor to whom honor is due. We have a president, whether you like him or not, he has an office that deserves honor and respect. And we have officials in government and places of authority in state and national government who deserve better treatment than what some of us give them. They deserve, for the very office's sake, respect and honor, and you do nothing but cheapen the name of Jesus when you don't give them that. Now, I've said what I want to say, and it's just straight out of God's Word. Now, there's some personal response we need to give. And I want, before we do it, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 12. The Gospel of Mark chapter 12. And the verse is 13. And by the way, 
There is a certain line of authority. You knew I'd get around to this, didn't you? That takes place within the church. And there are certain people on the staff of a church that have positions. And whether you like them or agree with them or not, they deserve for the very position respect and honor. All right, chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. And they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and defer to no one. They're building him up and getting ready to try to trap For you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In answer to their question, he gave them a both and answer. And this is what he said. He said, If you enjoy the benefits of Caesar, you pay Caesar. But because you live under God, He must have the final allegiance. Now there are two personal responses. A is this, that we are to obey God always and regardless. Obedience to God is non-negotiable. It is non-negotiable. You obey God always and regardless. Now, you may want to use some excuse for not being obedient to God, like, you know, I don't like the way they're doing stuff and all that down there at the church and whatever. But regardless and always, you be obedient to God. No exception. All right, second. You obey government Usually. <laughs> now, if you're tuning in on TV and you hear that and that's all you've heard, you've missed 30 minutes of explanation. You obey government usually. There were two Christian brothers, godly men, who had been incarcerated in Siberian work camp for 13 years because they preached the gospel. And when they were released, they made a trek to a group, a meeting of, of men in the Soviet bloc country of Christian men. And in this meeting, they, somebody turned to Romans 13 and, and said, Well, I wonder how you interpret Romans 13. Well, one of these guys just jumped up and his eyes were flashing in anger. He said, I'll tell you how to interpret Romans 13. The powers that be are ordained to do good. And when they persecute Christians, they're not of God. They're of the devil. That's how you interpret Romans 13. And a man by the name of Martin Neumuller, you've read his name. He was a great preacher when the Third Reich began. And he was taken, as well as Bonhoeffer and those German, great German preachers. Hilmut Tillich was one of them. And he was put in prison 
And all he had to do was just compromise and, and kind of side with the Third Reich and with Hitler. And one day his cowardly preacher colleague came to him in jail and said, Nymuller, you're a fool. If you'd have kept your mouth shut, you wouldn't be here tonight. And he looked at Mueller and said, Why are you in jail? And Mueller looked back and asked, Why are you not? When the government, God forbid that it ever happens, requires you to disobey God. You do what these men said. We must obey God rather than man. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for men that You've called and blessed and placed in places of ministry that are so unique to the salvation of our world that we don't even think of them often, forget them. And yet, ministers of God, standing for that which is right and good. And we pray for a kind of submission and surrender that is obedient to the law of God, wherever that law is. For I pray in Jesus' name.